Peter's got questions, he's got answers. Even though he may not understand, he'll talk anyway. He got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Well, hello from California. <laughs> I'm here at my new house. We just got here. There is no furniture. There is no internet. So in a very primitive state. And as I just settle into a new home, I wanted to share with you a sermon I gave on my last day in Tallahassee. Last week before driving all the way across the country, I talk a little bit about what I think the church is at its best. Now, I'll warn you, it is preachy. It's a sermon. It's not a talk. But I still thought it was something that might interest all of you. So hopefully I'll be back next week with a normal episode, maybe. Although I may just take a week off as I'm not entirely sure uh, there will be anything to record with in my house a week from now. But we'll see. Anyway. Uh, Here is the sermon I gave at Good Samaritan United Methodist Church in Tallahassee, Florida, on my last day in Tallahassee. You're listening to the sermon podcast feed of Good Samaritan United Methodist Church in Tallahassee, Florida. The reading today comes from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 12 to 25. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of his own, not of his own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies, for in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it in patience. The word of God for the people of God. Good morning. Good, Sam. It's good to see you. Uh, I am 
Mike McCarg, known in corners of the internet as Science Mike. Uh, I write books, I do some podcasts, I fly a couple hundred thousand miles a year talking to people about science and faith and doubt and justice and really whatever people want to talk about that they have a f- trouble finding a space in which to do so. But this morning, uh, I'm not Science Mike, I'm just Mike, uh, because I'm home. I'm a lifelong Floridian, a lifelong Tallahassee boy, and uh, for the last few years, my home and my family have been this church, and it is an honor to be here with you this morning and to have the opportunity to talk to you about that lunatic we call Paul. It's really strange, uh, we, we go out of the lectionary here for our messages, and I was, I was drawn to the Pauline passage this morning. Uh, and if you've ever stood in a pulpit before, you, before, then you know the Gospels are always a safe bet, right? Like, you get in those four books, everybody knows them, everybody loves them, you can challenge people but not so much they're angry at lunch, you can lift them up, it's a really good scene, whereas Paul... Paul can't go two paragraphs without saying something inflammatory or that pushes our buttons. And I think I understand why. Paul lived in an era in which all of the the well-known figures in the church, all the church planners, all the leaders had something in common. They knew a man named Jesus when he walked the earth. Can you imagine when they got together what they would talk about? Do you guys remember that time Peter got out of the boat and walked over to Jesus on water? Do you remember when we ran out of food? He did the thing with the fishes and the loaves. Paul didn't have those experiences. What did Paul have? A blinding light on the road to Damascus that no one else saw. So the rest of Paul's life, he's like, no, seriously, I'm an apostle too. <laughs> he had such tension with the, the, the main church, the head church in those days in Jerusalem. Uh, that He got a lot of license because he wanted to take the gospel to Gentiles. And the leaders in the church of Jerusalem would go, oh, Gentiles, huh? Have fun with that. Go plant your churches. And it's only when he started to get the attention of Jews throughout the diaspora in the Mideast and across Southern Europe that they started to say, wait a second, Paul, what are you, what are you talking about? His, his conflicts with some of the other disciples are legendary. And Romans is such a special book in the life of Paul. It's the last of the epistles that we're quite certain that Paul wrote. And unlike his other epistles, letters to churches that he helped start At the time he wrote Romans, probably in Corinth, he'd never been to the Church of Rome, even though he was a Roman citizen. The point of his epistle was to announce a possible visit. And in this opus of Paul's, he lays out what he understands to be the way to follow Jesus Christ, a bizarre mix of mysticism and legalism which happened to become the most influential way to be a Christian for the rest of human history. You see, Romans is a book that's more formal 
than we typically see from Paul. Because he's trying to define his spiritual and theological legacy. So these are important words to wrestle with. And believe me, no one sees the irony more deeply of me covering Paul. I caused a, quite a stir on the internet once by saying in a particular interpretation of Paul's writings, I thought the mainstream view was correct. I just thought Paul himself was wrong. So if you're not a, a, a Bible nerd, that's something we call heresy. So <laughs> what I do love about this passage is Paul's pontification of the flesh versus the spirit. Now, if you've grown up in church at all, this image of flesh and spirit is usually used to make you feel very guilty and to make you feel very ashamed and to say you should be more spiritual and less fleshly. You should care more about the Bible and less about pizza. You should care more about prayer and less about sex. Your focus should be on these non-bodily things of God, and you should rid yourself of this filth. And can I be honest? From that, for many years of my life, I carried an extreme amount of shame about my body and its sensations and its impulses. I viewed my body as something separate from myself, a divine spirit of God trapped in a corrupted container. Anybody else ever felt that zone? Somewhat common in the West. But as crazy as the idea struck me for so long, and I have spent several years trying to cast it off completely, it turns out that Paul's image here has tremendous scientific merit. Your brains developed in an environment where food was very scarce, where competition was fierce and no one could be trusted. And so your hind brain, the most ancient parts of your brain, small in volume, sit very close to your spinal column. They get first dibs on everything that comes from your senses. Only then do they get passed on to this forebrain that has altruism and poetry and art and compassion. In the very structure of our brain, we are set for Paul's dilemma of spirit versus flesh. To feel confused by our own actions. Sometimes I marvel when I eat that tenth donut. Why on earth did I do that? I'm trying to lose weight. Surely eight donuts was sufficient. <laughs> this, this divide shows us altruism versus serving the self, socialization versus isolation, working for tomorrow versus being obsessed with today. And we have all kinds of strategies to try to cope with this. Personally, I'm a spreadsheet guy. Uh, we've been planning a move across the country for years. And to make that smooth and effective and easy, I make spreadsheets. I have dozens and dozens of spreadsheets related to our move. And I've planned for every possible contingency so that things will go smoothly, my family will not feel stressed, and most importantly, never under any circumstances do I have to ask someone else for help. Because I got this. I'm self-sufficient. Frankly, 
I'm quite brilliant. <laughs> and yesterday morning, despite all of my careful planning and beautiful spreadsheets, cross-referenced with multiple sheets, calcula calculations embedded in the cells, single figures completely changing dynamic models of poetic mathematics, I found an unplanned contingency. <laughs> Furiously, I searched through these files for one phrase, movers don't show up. <laughs> Here we were with over 200 boxes and furniture sitting in our living room, a semi-trailer parked in front of the house, and 8 o'clock became 9 o'clock, and 9 o'clock became 10 o'clock, and still no movers. So I called them and said, hey, gentlemen, we have a move today, yes? Yes. Okay, where are you? I'm about two and a half hours away. Our truck broke down. Oh, so see you in two and a half hours? No, uh, we can't get there. I hate calling people. I don't like to ask for help. So I called my dad. I said, Dad, I need you to come over and teach me and Jenny and Madison and Macy how to pack a moving trailer <laughs> so our stuff is not broken when we get to Los Angeles. Dad said, no problem, I'm on the way. He understands Dad doesn't call people for help either. My wife, however, is not uh, afflicted with this condition. She called Justin and other people, and as I waited for Dad to pull up, cars kept showing up. And people kept saying, what can we do? And I said, I don't know, this isn't in the spreadsheet. So our friends took it upon themselves to devise a moving strategy for us. And in stifling July Tallahassee heat and humidity, people gave from their scarce free time on a Saturday to help us get moving. I've counted in my life as maturity that I planned so well. I've counted it in my life as something Faithful to God to be a good steward of what I've been entrusted. But I learned yesterday that sometimes what we believe is our maturity is a more elaborate ruse to dwell within our flesh and to keep it comfortable. Because, my friends, God created us to live in community. And when I am too reticent to say I need help, I say I need no one. I stand above you all. I learned yesterday that I don't. And that's an essential thing to understand Romans chapter 8 because as we talk about spirit versus flesh, as we talk about being children of God, children of God who cannot earn what they have already been given. Do you get that? You can't earn God's approval because you already have it. The, the key that unlocks this entire phrase is there is no condemnation in Christ. Those who follow the Spirit are free. It's the beginning of Romans 8. This flesh versus spirit thing that seems so heavy-handed actually starts out with the most freeing idea that I can imagine. There is no condemnation. Those who are in Christ are free. You see, Paul, in his life, wrestled to understand the essential truth of what Jesus came to tell us something that the earliest followers of Christ called the way. Paul was smart enough and well-read enough and connected enough to the early church to know that Jesus had provided a yoke to interpret the Hebrew scriptures. Rabbis were people in that culture 
who helped interpret the law via something called a yoke. So when Jesus says, my yoke is light, what he means is my way of interpreting the Torah is life-giving. And what was that message? It's so simple. One, love God with absolutely everything you have. Your heart, your mind, your soul. And two, to love your neighbor as yourself. You've probably seen t-shirts that say, love God, love others, there is no step three. But that misses an important point. Because in the story where Jesus explained his yoke, some smartass said, oh yeah, who's my neighbor? And Jesus brought the fire. He told a story about a Jewish man lying on the side of the road battered and bruised from assault. And then he explained how the religious, the civic, and the economic elites walked by saying, unclean, and didn't render any aid. And something you may mention in the parable of the Good Samaritan is that every one of those people was completely justified to do so. It was a valid interpretation of the Torah to say that man was unclean. It was a valid understanding of property rights to say, I have no obligation to help. They had every right to walk along. And then, a good-for-nothing, backwoods Samaritan comes by. If you understand the context of Judea and Samaria, they weren't cozy. Maybe like Tallahassee and Gainesville, but more intense. <laughs> but this Samaritan pours oil and wine on the man's wounds, the best antiseptic and soothing agents he had available. He lifts him off the ground. He carries him to an end. And he says, whatever expenses are required to care for this man, put them on my tab. I'll be back to pay. He had no obligation to do so. Jesus ends the story. So who was a neighbor to this man, and they were shamed into silence. There is no condemnation in Christ. I don't tell you about Romans 8 to make you feel guilty about your flesh, to tell you who you should be or who you could be, but instead to tell you who you already are. Because a few years ago, the religious elites saw me on the side of the road and they said that I was unclean. My family found ourselves for the first time in my life spiritually homeless, with nowhere to turn, isolated, afraid, cynical, embittered, depressed. But the Good Samaritan showed up. And I came to this church and they said, there is no condemnation for former atheists. There is no condemnation for people who don't have their theology worked out yet. There is no condemnation for author, speaker, podcasters who don't have a college degree. And it was a miracle. 
Because that lack of condemnation, my friends, is how we escape the bonds of the flesh. It is never through mastery. It is never through effort. It is through no condemnation in community. When you are loved, when you are safe, when you are affirmed, when you are told you are a child of God, you cannot earn what you already have. That is when we live in the Spirit. And you are masters at it. Because what's the big deal in offering no condemnation to an upper middle class, straight, white dude in America? That's easy. I don't care where you stand on any issue. That's easy. But the miracle of this body is when America is trying to tear itself apart, this church keeps drawing itself together. The miracle is not simply that you came at a moment my family needed it most, not once but twice. But also yesterday a room was packed full of people talking about the work of justice in our world. People who say it's not enough to socialize, it's not enough to come to worship. How do we take this out to the streets? How do we let the city of Tallahassee know they are children of God? Where do we find more people on the side of the road today? There's a hunger in this body that transcends politics and lines of race and lines of identity and opinions about things that we post on Facebook. In this church, there is no condemnation. A few weeks ago, we listened as Rika shared her story. She came down, stood right there, and Rika and Betsy, our woman pastor, served each other communion, a scandalous act in so much of this city. And then what happened? A single father and his son and a couple struggling with a new disability walked up and they served the Eucharist, the good gift to this body. And there was no condemnation. Because a good Sam, there is no condemnation for Trump voters or Hillary voters or Gary Johnson voters. At Good Sam, there is no condemnation for straight people, gay people, trans people. At Good Sam, there is no condemnation if you are black, white, Hispanic, Latino, or any racial identity. Because in good Sam, those in Christ are free. And who are those in Christ? The children of God. Everyone. They cannot earn what they have already been given. My friends, I don't tell you Romans 8 so that you know who you should be or who you could be. I tell you Romans 8 so that you will remember who you already are. And because this church is open, so is our table. And now we gather in a ritual that began 2,000 years ago when Christ said to his followers, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. You remember in this moment that Christ died, but more importantly, that Christ conquered death for us. So whether you're a Christian, not a Christian, a member, not a member, an atheist, an evangelical, you are welcome at this table. We invite you to experience a risen Christ in bread, wine, and a community of people who will never
condemn you. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to join us in person, Good Samaritan United Methodist Church is located on Capitol Circle Southeast across from Southwood in Tallahassee, Florida.